This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MDT podcast. I am Joe Preston and I'm a consultant geriatrician in London. And I'm Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician down in Surrey. And this week we're going to be talking about alcohol and alcohol misuse in older people. We're going to be hoping to get you to understand a little bit about the growing problem of alcohol and substance misuse within the elderly population. And hopefully at the end of this you'll be able to identify alcohol abuse and substance misuse and to know how to engage in constructive dialogue with older adults who might be experiencing substance misuse in a way that can bring out some positive change. We're going to look a little bit about how alcohol can affect an ageing body and some of the interactions between alcohol and some of the medications that uh, patients may be on. Mm. So before we get started, we're going to talk about things that we've seen on Twitter this week. So what have you got, in? I've got a, a thing from Liz Sampson. Mm-hmm. who's a palliative care doctor who specialises in palliative care and patients with dementia. And she does some really good research. She does some really good stuff, yeah. And so this was a tweet about a new article that's come out looking at the fact that there is an increased prevalence in A&E of uh, A&E providing care to patients with dementia towards the end of their life and highlighting the fact that that means two things are needed. First of all, a better community provision for end-of-life care in older adults with dementia, uh, but also that emergency departments need to become uh, a bit more dementia-friendly because yeah. m- more people are attending at the, the end stages of their life. Yeah, that's really nice and really important as well, mm. isn't it? And, and there's, it's very unlikely for dementia-friendly to be not friendly to everybody else. Yeah, exactly. Um, So mine is a study as well, although it's an ongoing study, called the PEACH Project, um, which I just thought was quite nice, and it's using improvement science um, to bridge the gap between knowledge, uh, so what we know and what we do in terms of healthcare services in care homes. And it's being run in Nottingham. Mm, Nice. Yeah, and it's working with four CCGs and their health and healthcare and care home providers, um, which I thought was really nice because we quite often see big randomised control trials, or we don't really, but, you know, that's kind of how people try and standardise what what we should be doing. But the implementation of that is somewhat lost quite often. So this is kind of specifically looking at that. So I think this is going to be something that's really practical when the results of that come out. And I think they're talking about some of the preliminary results at the Autumn BGS this year, which is going to be in London. Right, getting down to business. We're going to start off with a definition, Mm. and I think we need a a nerd alert for the definition, actually. Because this is quite a long one. Yeah. And this is from the DSM-5. So addiction, or substance dependence, as it's termed by the American Psychiatric Association, is defined as a maladaptive pattern of substance misuse leading to clinically significant impairment or distress, as manifested by three or more of the following occurring at any time in the same 12-month period. And then we're going to talk through what those things are. Yeah. And there are seven of them. So, so three of these seven. So first of which is a development of tolerance. Mm-hmm. So that's either a need for increased amounts of the substance to achieve intoxication or the desired effect, or a markedly diminished effect with the continued use of the same amount of the substance. Mm-hmm. The second is withdrawal from that substance. The third is the substance often taken in large amounts or over a longer period than originally intended. There is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control the substance abuse. 
and a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain the substance. For example, um, maybe visiting multiple sets of doctors or driving long distances mm -hmm. if the substance is prescription medications. The next is looking at activities that might have been given up or reduced because of the substance misuse, so important social, occupational or recreational activities. And the final one is that the substance use is continued despite the knowledge that it's having a persistent physical or psychological problem to the user. And then the next thing that we're going to talk about is early onset and late onset alcoholism. So we were talking, that definition there is kind of any substance misuse, of which obviously alcohol is one. And this kind of reminds me of the definition that we had in the depression episode, of the kind of early yeah. onset depression, late onset depression, and they're fairly similar distinctions. Yeah, so the early onset is someone who has had a lifelong pattern of alcohol use or overuse, been addicted to alcohol for most of their lifetime, and they have just reached the time that they're now older. Older. And they tend to have poorer relationships with their family, um, a deteriorating socioeconomic status, um, maybe some alcohol abuse in the family. Yeah. And that probably accounts for about 75% of older mm. people uh, suffering from alcohol misuse. Yeah. And so then the other side of that is late onset alcoholism. So many of these people start to suffer with alcoholism much later in life. So usually starting about their 40s or 50s. Um, lots of them are highly educated and so they're in a, a different socioeconomic status. They tend to be in a higher group. And these people tend to suffer alcoholism because of an, a traumatic event that they've suffered at some point in their lives. Yeah, and that makes up the other 30%. Yeah. So the other way of thinking of that actually is in three different types. Mm -hmm. So the first is the survivors. So these are the people that have early onset and they've been addicted to alcohol for most of their lives. The second is the reactors, so they've turned to alcohol to help cope with a traumatic event in later life. And the third are the intermediate people. So these people often, they binge drink, they may start later in their life, and they can be helped quite a bit by supportive measures. Yes, they have a lot to gain from yeah. the interventions. So the size of the problem, why are we talking about this? It's difficult to know, I think. Mm. I had to look through, and, it, and it, it's probably a lot higher than we expected. Mm. It's probably a lot higher than we think that it is going to be. Um, and older people generally tend to drink less alcohol than younger people. But even so, about one in five older men and one in ten older women are drinking enough to harm themselves. And those figures have increased by about 40% in men and about 100% in women mm. over the last 20 years. And that comes from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And they've got some really useful resources, haven't they? Something called Invisible Addicts and Substance Misuse Guide in Older Adults. Um, and then America has another one, which we'll put links to in the show notes. Yeah, that American one is really good, actually, because it's a whole free book. Mm. On this. It's, it's really useful. Um, some of the, the bits that we're going to talk about from this have come from directly from those two resources, yeah. so the, put the links to those in the show notes. And the first study we're going to talk about um, is an American study from mm -hmm. Philadelphia. It was published earlier this year of city-dwelling adults, and it was about 259 people, or actually 259 people. Um, and alcohol and substance misuse was reported in over 20% of the respondents, with 3.4% of them being engaged in maladaptive alcohol use. And in the people that were drinking alcohol, what was interesting, I thought, was that it was predictive for development of depression, for a global psychological distress, and really importantly, a reduced quality of life. Mm. That doesn't prove causation, obviously. Yeah. And some of those things may be drivers, and we'll talk about that, into yeah. uh, turning to alcohol. But Even just thinking the they're in a big city in America, as different demographic to potentially sort of yeah. community, yeah. country-dwelling people. <laughs> There are various sort of reported as safe levels of mm. alcohol um, intake. And 
They're around, debated a little bit, aren't they? They are, yeah. Um, but I think the ones at the moment is 14 units a week for, for women and 21 units a week mm. for men. And that comes with the Royal College of Physicians, doesn't it? But mm. that, there isn't actually, as far as I know, any evidence that backs up those as numbers. But it's a kind of recommendation of what they think is probably yeah. safe. But it's individual. Anyone that's drinking consistently, even at low levels, might be at higher risk than other people who are yeah. drinking. Yeah. Higher. And the Royal College of Physicians report that one in six men and one in 15 women over the age of 65 are drinking at levels above that. Mm. And there's been a a rise over the last 10 years. In with that, men and women. With men and women, yeah. And that leads on to the fact that mortality rates for drug and alcohol use are higher in older people mm. when compared to uh, younger people. And often older people have really complex patterns of substance misuse, so it may well be alcohol plus the inappropriate use of prescribed medications. And people often use large amounts of over-the-counter medications. Mm. And the rates of misuse, both sort of intentionally and inadvertently are are particularly high, um, particularly in older ladies. Mm. Although alcohol use does decline with age, there are a significant number of older people who do consume alcohol at what we consider dangerous levels. Illicit drug use, however, is is fairly uncommon in the over-65 age group at the moment, but there have been significant increases in the over-40 age group, Mm. and as that cohort ages, and we will probably anticipate that shift to be seen um, in older people in in years to come who are either still using or have complications from using illicit drugs in the past. Yeah, and older men are at the greatest risk of developing alcohol and illicit substance use, uh, much more than women. But women, interestingly, are at a higher risk of developing problems related to the misuse of prescriptions mm. or over-the-counter um, medications. But because of the physiological changes associated with ageing, um, older adults are at an increased risk of the adverse physical effects from substance misuse. Um, so that's even at relatively modest levels of intake, which is why it's really important to understand what people might be um, using or drinking. Mm. And yet, despite this, only 6 or 7% of high-risk people with substance misuse mm. over the age of 60 actually receive the treatment they require. Yeah. Now, some of that is that we're not picking people up. Yeah, and some uh, partly that they're less likely to complain of substance misuse as a problem, especially if it's something they've been doing for many years. But when people are recognised or do talk about it, they are more likely than younger people to be motivated to recover. Yeah. Which is really positive. Yeah, it's really positive. So I think one of the things that would be useful for us to think about how do you go about assessing people, how do you go about looking for this substance misuse which may or, or may not be there? So, as always, starts with a good history. It does. The underreporting might be because of a denial within that person, um, because of a perceived stigma around it, or because of an actual stigma that a healthcare professional might be projecting accidentally, um, through lack of awareness or sometimes memory impairment as well. An assessment will then lead to formulation of a management plan that takes into account all of their multiple comorbidities, their functional abilities, um, the influences of loss events on their mood state, that might be perpetuating the substance misuse, what's their cognitive state at the moment, including the influence of substances and physical disorders on their cognition, and what social support do they have. Yeah. And then you need to go on and do a, a bit more of a systematic assessment, thinking about what they drink, when, where, how do they access it, have they had previous mental health problems, what are the effects of the drinking, are they falling, have they mm. got other substances they're misusing? There's a few screening tools out there. Cage is the one that we all know about and use fairly often. Yeah. I think it's quite good with young Should we people. run through it? Yes. So the C is the, have you ever thought about cutting back yes. the amount that you're drinking? A is. Do you get angry when people ask you about your drinking? 
G is do you ever feel guilty, guilty. about your drinking? An E. An eye opener. Do you ever have a drink first uh, thing in the morning? Yeah. Yes. So there is another screening test called the Michigan Alcoholism Screening Test, and there's a geriatric version of this. It's called SMAST G. SMAST G, yeah. It's kind of cool name. And it's been validated for the use in older hospital patients, uh, and it's quite good. And we'll put a link for that in the um, show notes. I think it's really important when you're doing a cognitive exam to get an idea of someone's alcohol use um, to see how that might be influencing their performance on the cognitive testing yeah. as well. So I know a lot of memory clinics won't see someone while they're actively drinking um, or for mood problems as well because it can have such an adverse effect. Yeah. And the Royal College of Psychiatrists publication, Invisible Addicts, um, suggests that GPs should screen every older person over the age of 65 for substance misuse as part of a routine health check mm. using the smashed G, but also the mini mental state examination to assess for cognition. Just another thing for GPs to do. It's a lot, a lot for GPs to do. Yeah. And the next is, as with history for every patient, it's examination. And this will probably be more focused towards looking for side effects of the medication or alcohol. Um, so any signs of permanent damage that they might have done and anything you might be able to do around that to help support them. And then forming a management plan, which we're going to look at later. And this can kind of be summarised in the 5A approach, which is to assess, to advise, to assist, and then to arrange. Um, it's kind of a useful guide for... You love a good mnemonic, don't you? I do, I do, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um, there are considerable opportunities. So there, there's a, there was another article published uh, last year, in 2016, looking at managing older people's alcohol misuse in primary care. And it was felt that there were considerable opportunities for GPs to improve the quality of life in older people with alcohol misuse, which can be achieved by both planning and opportunistic screening as part of the general health review, as, as we've mm. already said, particularly when associated with mental health disorders. And then improving the referral onto secondary care services um, to try and produce a seamless uh, approach to improving the care for older people. But it weighs heavily on primary care to do yeah. that. And I know that we say it's about everything that prevention is key, but this is one of those areas that you really don't want to be at the situation where people are hitting secondary care services if possible. The earlier the intervention here, the, the better. So you can see why that's as a recommendation. So let's move on to talk about health promotion interventions at that point. Yeah. So I think alcohol and substance misuse, it's, it's not very well understood by the older population. Mm. And it's on the increase due to a number of societal factors. There are a number of publications calling for health and social care publications who are in contact with this fairly complex cohort of patients um, to gain more training. And there have been some studies looking at cost effectiveness and showing that, that treating people with alcohol use disorders is really cost effective. So for every pound spent on the treatment, the public sector saves five pounds. Yeah. And I think it's think worth thinking about why that is. Mm. And I think a lot of that is about the knock-on effect and the problems that people get with alcohol. Now, we're going to talk through problems with alcohol next, um, but another way to look at this is how they might present to you and then think back, could alcohol have an influence on this? So the first thing is falling and injuries. Yep. Uh, second is being admitted to hospital. Mm -hmm. In one study in the US, 40% of admissions to US hospitals in the elderly were associated with alcohol. But I feel duty-bound to point out <laughs> that in that context, elderly was over 40, which uh, it's, you know, it's I'm not shaking really my head. No. Next is social isolation, depression and other mental health disorders. Uh, so we, we know that those things go hand in hand frequently. Next is drug interactions. Mm. We could uh, have another nerd alert for this, I think. OK. Yeah. 
there was a study that looked specifically at this. I think it's worth just going through this study just, just a little bit. So this was a cross-sectional assessment of a stratified random sample of 2,100 elderly people over the age of 65 in Espoo in Finland. It's a great town, town name. And so they got 71% response rate from That's this survey, good. which is good, from a community dwelling sample. Should we just say cross-sectional means they just went across society? Yes. They didn't target one specific group. They kind of went completely flat across, trying to get representation of the whole Yes, so everyone over the age of 65, yeah. And they looked at the drugs that people were on and they coded them according to an anatomical therapeutic chemical classification index. And uh, within that, they had medications that were significantly interacting with alcohol. Mm. And, and these are prescribed medications prescribed, as well. Yeah. And then they split participants into those at risk, those at moderate risk and minimal risk, and then those of non-alcohol users. Mm-hmm. Um, so of the total sample, which was 1,395 people, 1,142 responded as using at least one drug. And then there were 62% of people who used alcohol. So looking at the people that used the most amount of alcohol, they called those most at risk. The mean number of medications that those people were on was 4.2. Mm-hmm. The moderate users, the mean number of medications was four. And the minimal risk, or the no alcohol, the mean number of medications was slightly higher, actually, at 5.4. And, and that was statistically yeah. significant. Um, and the concomitant use of drugs that potentially could interact with alcohol was widespread. Um, worryingly, amongst the most at-risk users, there were 40% of people who were taking medications that interacted with alcohol. Uh, the moderate users, it was a bit less, at 35%. And then the minimal risk people, it was a bit higher at 52%, but they're not drinking alcohol. So, yeah. And one in ten of the most at-risk people were using warfarin, hypnotics, sedatives, or metformin, which okay. interacts with alcohol. Mm. So their conclusion was that the use of um, alcohol-interacting drugs is common amongst older people, and this increases the potential risks related to the use of alcohol. And four medications is not that many for it's not. the kind of population that we see. So you would anticipate that that risk is yeah. probably magnified or so a bit higher now. Yeah, and then 40% of those people are on medications that are going to interact with mm. alcohol. So that's yeah. yeah. So what about the good benefits of alcohol? Mm. Not just that it can be fun sometimes. There's all these stories every now and then about, you know, alcohol's good for you, a glass of red wine is quite good for you. Um, so there's a study in 2007 published in Age and Aging um, that showed that middle-aged and older men and women with moderate levels of alcohol consumption are associated with better cognitive health than abstinence. So mm. it's not just newspapers reporting no. this kind of thing. As part of the cardiovascular health study, there were 3,500 adults over the age of 65 who underwent MRI scans of their brain between 1992 and 1994. Participants were excluded if they had a confirmed history of cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. And they measured their intake through a self-reporting questionnaire of beer, wine and other spirits at the annual clinic visit part of the study. And they split people into six categories, ranging from people who are abstinent from alcohol to people drinking more than 15 drinks a week. Mm. They got the neuroradiologist to assess the MRI scans and then they did a multivariate regression to control for various socio-demographic and clinical characteristics. So other things that might explain the changes that they're seeing on the MRIs. And what they found was a U-shaped relationship between alcohol consumption and white matter abnormalities. Mm. So moderate alcohol consumption was associated with a lower prevalence of white matter abnormalities and infarcts, thought to be vascular. But 
there was a dose-dependent effect with brain atrophy. So the more alcohol people drank, the more they had atrophy on their brains. Mm. And that, I think, is the sort of thing that we've heard in the media is that a little bit might be good for you because it's protecting maybe from the vascular side, but too much is causing atrophy. How this happens is not clear, but it might be related to inflammation. Yeah, so it was a study of over 3,000 older men in Italy. And alcohol intake showed a J-shaped relationship with mean interleukin-6, which is an inflammatory marker that we can measure in the blood, um, and CRP levels, which again is an inflammation marker. And that association was consistent with both men and women. What they found is that in well-functioning older adults, light alcohol consumption is associated with lower levels of these inflammatory markers. And these results might suggest that there's an additional biological explanation for the epidemiological link between moderate alcohol consumption and cardiovascular mm. events. And then the final study I think we should mention at this point is again published this year in, in the Osteoporosis International Journal. And this surprised me, actually. So it showed that moderate drinking and what they called a Mediterranean drinking pattern, um, I will admit, I don't fully understand what that is. I see it was a glass of red wine with dinner. Maybe were associated with a lower risk of falls and injurious falls in older people. Mm. But they did make the point that sound advice on alcohol consumption should balance the risks and the benefits. Because my traditional thinking is that (sighs) alcohol leads to falls. Yes. Well, too much. Yes. So we've thought about how to identify who may be at risk. We've thought about screening tools that can be used. And we now know that alcohol potentially could be bad for us. Mm. So how are we going to stop drinking, Jo? Well, brief interventions seem to work and there's something that we can all probably do. You found a nice mnemonic again. Yes. Do you not, did you not remember learning this at medical school? <laughs> no, I didn't. No. OK, so this is the frames <laughs> format. So, I think Ian learned all of his medicine in mnemonics. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. Uh, F was for feedback. So giving structured and personalised feedback on the risk and the harm to them. Our responsibility. Placing an emphasis on the patient's personal responsibility for the change that they're trying to achieve. A is for advice. So giving advice to the person on making a change in their drinking habits and how they might go about that. M is a menu. Of strategies for making a change. Yep. E is empathy. So being nice to them and being non-judgmental. And S is self-efficacy. So attempting to increase the person's confidence in being able to change that behaviour for themselves. So there was a study looking at five-year treatment outcomes in older people and comparing that to middle-aged and younger people. This is American, in a managed care chemical dependency Mm programme. Older adults were less likely to be drug-dependent at baseline than younger and middle-aged adults and had longer retention in treatment than younger adults. Yeah, so they stayed... They stayed out for the treatment. Mm. And at five years, older adults were less likely to than younger adults to have close family or friends who encouraged their substance misuse. Yeah. About 52% of older adults reported total abstinence from drugs and alcohol in the previous 30 days compared with 40% of younger adults. Yep. And older women had a higher 30-day abstinence rate than older men or younger women. Mm -hmm. And among the participants dependent only on alcohol, there was no significant age difference in in 30-day abstinence. Yeah. So older adults do well. They do well, well. yeah. And the only thing I was thinking with the study is it's a bit sort of comparing apples with pears because it's sort of comparing all substance misuse together and sort of... They'll all have different patterns. But their conclusions are that um, older adults have a favourable long-term outcome following treatment relative to younger adults, but the differences may be accounted for by... Um, variabilities associated with age, but also the substance dependence, the treatment retention and the social networks and gender and other things. 
So underdiagnosis of problem drinking in older adults is quite unfortunate because the risks associated with alcohol abuse and relapse for the elderly are significant. And as we've just heard, they can actually do quite well in alcohol and drug rehabilitation programmes. So relapse or return to drinking following abstinence um, may follow situations that were particularly high risk for older adults. So those might be situations related to anxiety, interpersonal conflict, perhaps with a family member or a friend, depression, which we know um, older adults are at a higher risk of, um, if they're feeling lonely or if they have any loss or social isolation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in the loneliness episode, which is later in this series. But by helping patients to monitor these high-risk situations and to identify strategies that have been successful in promoting absence in the past, the aim is to help them to be engaged in treatment and therefore uh, avoid relapse and maintain their abstinence. So kind of teaching them strategies to proactively identify these problems coming and act on them themselves early. Yeah. So there are a few different treatments. Uh, things like cognitive behavioural therapy uh, might be good. Uh, group and family therapies, as well as self-help groups, um, are just as effective in older adults as they are in other age groups. And in fact, group and family therapies and self-help groups might be of particular benefit to older adults because of the emphasis on social support, which, mm. if that's one of the triggers for them, can be quite helpful. And medicinal adjuncts is something we haven't talked about yet as an intervention. So no, you no. can use medications to help people in a carefully selected group of, of people who are able to consent to it. And essentially that's a medication that um, you take and then if you drink on it, you're very, very sick. So you have to be motivated to take it. You need to have very strict compliance. You need to be very motivated and there needs to be careful monitoring of adverse effects. And that's especially important um, in patients who are taking lots of medications as lots of our older adults are. And then finally, that's thinking about social care interventions. There was a study that set out to qualitatively explore some of the strategies and approach for working with alcohol problems in older people and then what health and social care professionals can learn from these. Mm. And they felt that the high level of contact that people, particularly in social care, um, have with older adults meant that they may well be perfectly... Really well placed. ...placed, yeah, to identify and intervene yeah. in this age group. What some of the findings show is that relationship building, empathy and skill communication were at the core of all of the interventions with older drinkers and that the risks to their health and well-being, both from themselves or others, need to be central to any intervention that's put in place. Studies from around the world have shown that alcohol problems in older people often go undetected or ignored. Mm. And given that the population globally is ageing, this is going to be a problem that is going to continue and so we, we we have to start prevalent. looking for this. Yeah, And social work education uh, needs to play its role in supporting frontline professionals to identify, to intervene and to safeguard older adults from the potential damage from alcohol-related harm. So one of the things we haven't really discussed in this episode is the factors leading towards alcohol and what interventions can be put into place towards that. I think we'll cover those in different episodes as we go through, particularly the loneliness one that's coming up, as we mentioned. So finally, we're going to finish with a comment from Age Kimri, which is like Age UK. For Wales. For yeah. Wales. And they say, triggers such as bereavement, retirement or divorce can often lead older people to a greater feeling of loneliness or isolation. A number of the services that may have helped to tackle this root cause, such as day centres or Meals on Wheels, have been suffering from cutbacks as a consequence of funding pressures. A situation further aggravated by the loss of public transport routes that were vital to older people, especially in rural areas. For substance misuse support and treatment for older people to be most cost-effective, it is essential that the issue is approached holistically. 
recognising that the impact that cuts on what appear to be unrelated services may be having on the well-being of older people. And I think that's quite a nice summary of, of the whole the whole thing, really. Mm. So let us know your comments. Uh, you can contact us on Twitter at MDT underscore podcast. Or on facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or via our website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk. And if you go to the page for this episode, you can leave a comment at the bottom um, and that will feed into the show notes and yeah. things for other people. And as usual, we put all of the references in the show notes. There will be any resources that we've been given or that if you give us, we will add there as well. Um, you can find infographic to download and share with your colleagues yeah. around this. You can log your CPD uh, and get an email with your reflections on mm-hmm. the episode. And you can also use the episodes uh, for your ongoing learning and they're mapped to a whole bunch of postgraduate curriculums. Yeah, so check those out. And remember, we are doing a Twitter journal club on this episode and issues that have been raised next week at Wednesday at 8.30 using the hashtag MDT Club. Yeah. Grab a cup of tea, come join us. The MDT Podcast. So, now's the time of the week it for the MDTzer. This is our MDT item guessing game. Um, so, Joe, do you want to go first this week? I do. Yeah, have you got a stopwatch? I... Do I need to get a stopwatch? I'm going to get a stopwatch. You get a stopwatch. Okay, so what Joe's going to do is she's been given some clues from Pam Trangmar, who's a physician associate that works with me. And Joe, what you should have in front of you is a word that you need me to guess yes. and then a series of words that you're not allowed to use yes. in getting me to guess that. Yes. Okay, go. Pam is one. I've got to give myself a chance. I've got to give myself a chance. I'm waiting a while. She is not a... Uh, this is her job. This is what she does. You cannot play I the can game this way. I could let this string out for ages, couldn't I? So Pam is a physician associate. <laughs> yes, there you go. Okay. Now Ian is trying to play the game now <laughs> that it's whoever can get it quickest, so he's purposefully not getting it. That's cheating, so I'd say, and disqualifies you from that, 20 I seconds, say. that was you. I think from the look on your face, you had it at three seconds. But, okay. So I have a, a word with 12 words underneath it that I'm not allowed to say. Okay. you got a stopwatch? Yeah. Ready? Go. Okay, so this is something that we use as a way to deliver drugs that people aren't taking by mouth. Subcutaneous. Intravenous. Drip. Cannula. Yes. So, yes. Yes, 15 seconds. I win. Oh, listen, I keep forgetting that that's the rules. Fine. Next time I'm being silent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we have one for you, and I'm going to hand over to Tappy, uh, who has a clue for you. As ever, keep your guesses coming in on Twitter using the hashtag MDTeaser. Here it is. So what do you think it is? Let us know using the hashtag MDTeaser on Twitter, where we are at MDT underscore podcast. Or you can drop us a line on Facebook, and that's facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or if you want to be quiet about it and you don't want to let other people know what your guess is, you can go to our website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. In the top right-hand corner, you can email us. Lovely. Thank you for listening. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. 
The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media Production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. Thank you.